Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode one of Foreign Affairs, sponsored by the Fleming Foundation. I am pleased to have as my guest this evening, Dr. Sergio Trikovic and Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Trikovic, Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, we've actually been wanting to have this show for a while, but it's been um, it's been a challenge to to keep up with Dr. Trifkovich and also just to keep up with the flow of uh, world news these days. It seems uh, there's so much going on. I'm sure you must be busy uh, trying to uh, speak a lot, Dr. Trifkovich, about these affairs uh, about which you know you know a lot and you hear a lot. We're going to start with the oldest news event um, in today in today's conversation, which is the the issue with Russia and Turkey. And we knew a little bit at the beginning, and we've known more since, and there's been more follow-up. For our listeners who are maybe not as clear on what exactly happened or what has happened since, can you give us a snapshot of the incident and what has happened since and what we should know? On 24th of November, two uh, Soviet-era bombers, Sukhoi 24s, were active in uh, northern uh, Syria along the border with Turkey, bombing jihadist positions that were uh, held by Turkmen minority in Syria, affiliated to the al-Nusra. The United States received information from the Russians on the flight paths and expected times of these activities by two Russian bombers. And the United States shared this information with Turkey in accordance with NATO standard rules and procedures. I do not believe that the United States actively advised the Turks to undertake the action that amounted to an ambush. But it was obvious that the information supplied by the Russians to the U.S. passed on to the Turks was used by President Erdogan and uh, his chain of command to set an ambush. Because as we uh, could see clearly from the flight paths of the two Turk-16s, or rather before and during the approach of the two Russian planes, it was uh, a, a classic setup. Uh, They allegedly violated uh, the Turkish airspace for the duration of 17 seconds. The Turks said that 17-second gap uh, was equal to the passage of 1.6 miles of Turkish airspace, which means that the Russian bombers uh, were supposed to fly at 280 kilometers per hour which is physically impossible. Those jets cannot fly at that low speed to maintain balance. So the actual downing of the Russian plane occurred over the Syrian territory. One of uh, the two flight crew was murdered by Turkmen on the ground. And the Russians had every reason to believe that this would not have been possible had the U.S. not supplied the Turks with the information. The question arises as to whether there is an element of premeditated uh, and uh, one might say nefarious activity by the United States. I would say not. I think 
people in Washington simply let Erdogan do his own thing by, uh, by virtue of being supplied with detailed information and by virtue of knowing that he's something of a maverick so that the U.S. has the plausible deniability factor in the play. I also don't believe that key decision makers such as Obama or John Kerry would have been prepared to risk a serious escalation that could be connected to them in an overt way. However, I do think that by passing the information to the Turks, they simply let uh, Erdogan erratic and unpredictable and uh, high-stakes gambler that, his, that he is do his own thing. Why he did it uh, is an open question, because on the whole, he could not have expected the Russians to remain passive. He tried to carve a degree of autonomy of action vis-a-vis -vis Washington over the past few years, notably in uh, his deterioration of relations with Israel. But at the same time, it's inconceivable that he would be able to do this and not count on Washington's and, by implication, NATO protection. My hunch is that to him it is more important in terms of the neo-Ottoman strategy that Turkey has been following over the past decades to appear as the protector of Turkmen jihadists in northern Syria and as someone capable of standing up to the Russians in spite of all the strategic benefits that he could derive from a close relationship with the Russians, including construction projects. There are 150,000 Turks engaged on construction projects in, in Russia right now. Three million Russian tourists on the Turkish Aegean and Mediterranean coast. I believe that Erdogan's game is also based on the assumption that he is playing the game that the United States approved of, approved of, but did not directly authorize him to perform. It is a dangerous situation in which a maverick neo-Islamist who has been busy turning Turkey away from the legacy of secularist uh, republicanism of Kemal Atatürk is now trying to involve NATO by virtue of being a member. Uh, he is uh, a very skillful politician. After all, he renewed the war against the Kurds in eastern Turkey to improve the chances of his AKP party uh, in the general election of November the 1st. But at the same time, he's forgetting that the Russians may respond by arming uh, Syria's Kurds in the full knowledge that they will pass these arms to the KPP in eastern Turkey, which is now engaged in outright war against the Turkish military. When you talk about that plausible deniability, Dr. Trifkovich, do we have any relationship to what was happening with the Georgian offensive some years ago where the U.S. is, is maybe, as you say, maybe not having a nefarious role, but, but letting, letting Putin play his hand and, and kind of stepping back and, 
and watching what happens happen. Uh, the U.S. diplomacy is notorious for creating situations in which this plausible deniability is present. Uh, if we look at the beginning of the Bosnian War in the spring of 1992, then U.S. Ambassador in, in Sarajevo, oh, sorry, in Belgrade, Warren Zimmerman, flew to Sarajevo to tell Ali Ezebegovic, the leader of the Muslim side, that the EU brokered uh, model for Bosnia, which is very similar to what emerged at the end of the war, its de facto partition into self-governing ethnic entities uh, is not necessarily what the United States will, will support. And if he doesn't like it, he can withdraw his signature. As I've written for Chronicles repeatedly over the years, it was this particular act that contributed more than any other external input to the subsequent chaos and bloodshed that occurred in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Likewise, uh, Ambassador Apley Glasby in uh, uh, Baghdad told Saddam Hussein that the U.S. had no opinion on the possibility of Iraq uh, trying to establish control over Kuwait, and then we know what happened with the rest of history. So I would say that this was one of those moves that leaves a lot of room for ambiguity, and it will be for the historians to decide what exactly came to pass between Erdogan and the U.S. in, in the days preceding the attack on the, on, on, the, on the Russian jet. I would say that there are elements within the U.S. deep state, and deep state is a term which denotes people who have their particular agenda not necessarily reflected in the key decision makers paradigm and who nevertheless want to pursue it in opposition to the stated objectives so that maybe Obama and, and Kerry didn't know what uh, some uh, generals at the Pentagon or some uh, high-ranking civil servants in Poggy Bottom were doing, but nevertheless the result corresponded to their desire to see a Turkish-Russian conflict in which the U.S. proponents of global dominance can sit back and enjoy themselves. Now, Dr. Rifkic, you said that Erdogan's a bit of a, a maverick. What has Putin's response and his position and standing in the, in the country been uh, since this incident? In my opinion, it was totally inadequate. Uh, for the previous several years, Putin has carefully built up and maintained the image of a chess player who can anticipate opponents' moves and who can respond in an effective and, uh, and uh, uh, strong manner. Uh, August 2008, the response to the attempt by Saakashvili to take over South Ossetia is a case in point. Now, however, he failed even to 
recall the Russian ambassador in Ankara for consultations. Two days after the attack on, on uh, the Russian bomber, on November 26, I was shocked to see that the Russian ambassador was called to the Turkish foreign ministry to be given a pro protest note about uh, the stone of the, uh, the Turkish embassy of Moscow, because I had assumed automatically that he would have been recalled immediately. Why did not the Russians recall their ambassador in, in Ankara on the very day of Another question is this proposed pipeline, so-called Turkish stream, which was supposed to replace southern stream, uh, which was cancelled because of the EU opposition, uh, largely due to the pressure from the United States. What good would it do for Russia to have a massive gas pipeline going across Turkey into Europe if you have such an unreliable and hectic and, uh, at times, hysterical partner, such as Erdogan, it is hardly an improvement on having Poroshenko and his merry band of Kievan neo-fascists controlling the supply of Russian gas to Europe to have a, a Turkish pipeline which is controlled by Erdogan. Well, obviously, as you say, there's some chess going on, and we have the the decision of the United Kingdom that happened this week. So this uh, this incident happened back in November, and now we're in the the second week of December, and uh, we have the UK voting to bomb Syria. So whereas Russia was was seen as the the leader of these airstrikes against ISIS, the UK has now joined in plausibly or ostensibly because they're supposed to stand with their allies and they're supposed to do something. Um, can you give us a, a, a real assessment uh, that, uh, that isn't uh, partisan as to what the UK's involvement is actually going to bring? I believe that the UK involvement is as minor as it was in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the United Kingdom has ceased to be a great power a long time ago, just like France. Uh, grandstanding by Cameron and uh, his theatrical declarations to the House of Commons notwithstanding, the actual contribution that uh, uh, British tornadoes can make to uh, uh, the survival of or the degradation of the Islamic State is largely irrelevant. But how does this change the calculus for what's going on there in Syria in, in terms of uh, what ISIS does? Uh, does it target London next? Uh, it, it, does it now have its uh, sort of a reason to go and, and bomb some, someone in London? Um, and, and how does this continue the sort of quagmire that's going on? Does it, does it, do, does it uh, give us a mission creep that will lead to ground troops at some point? Or, or is this just going to be some, some sort of aerial bombardment uh, for the next couple of years? Uh, the problem is that the U.S.-led coalition does not have viable boots on the ground. The Kurds have been effective in resisting ISIS in the areas where they are the ethnic majority, notably the city of Kobani in northern Syria but they are not willing to go out of their ethnic areas 
and to battle ISIS in majority Arab Sunni areas. It applies to northern Syria equally. It applies to northwestern Iraq. The Kurds are interested in establishing de facto autonomous areas in northwestern Iraq. We already have a de facto functioning Kurdish state, and uh, they will go along with whoever serves their purpose the best. And their purpose is to be the masters of their destiny, and that is closely connected to the future of the Kurdish restive minority in eastern Turkey, against which Erdogan is now in open war. And my hunch is that they will find a common language with the Russians and uh, the government of Bashar al-Assad before they even consider any U.S.-led proposals because the United States still relies on Turkey and Saudi Arabia as key allies in the region. And for both the Turks and the Saudis, uh, the phenomenon called the Islamic State is a welcome wedge to divide uh, the Shiite, putative Shiite crescent of influence that goes from Iran and majority Shiite Iraq in the east, across the Alawite-controlled regime in Damascus to Hezbollah in Lebanon. They see ISIS for uh, the rhetoric of joining the coalition, uh, notwithstanding, as uh, an eminently welcome geopolitical strike against the Shiite ambitions in the region. One of the things that Dr. Fumin had talked about before we began our episode today was the historical context of the, the Crimean War. Dr. Fleming, for our listeners who are not familiar with that and, and how that plays into our themes of Russia, Turkey, Christian, and, and, and Muslim, can you give us a bit of background there? Well, I think Dr. Trifkovich could do a much better job, but I mean, the, in the 19th century, the, the expansion of the uh, Russian Empire came, uh, came headlong into the, into the Great Wall of the Ottoman Empire. And there were, of course, even to this day, there are uh, Muslim-dominated areas in the, the Russian Federation. But, but the lot of the various uh, Islamic groups that lay between Turkey and modern Russia were, of course, systematically preying upon the Russians, invading the border, uh, you know, committing, committing various kinds of... Uh, Act as the Chechens continue to do up till the present. This led to a series of conflicts between the, these two empires, and of course, uh, and ultimately to the Crimean War uh, between uh, Russia and Turkey. The, the 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 part the point I wanted to make earlier was um, at least to raise the question. In those days, very dirty role was played by Great Britain especially uh, under the leadership of Benjamin Disraeli, who systematically favored the Turks everywhere, even though, of course, uh, the Ottoman Empire was oppressing and subjugating and committing atrocities against Christian populations wherever they ruled. And therefore, Disraeli was completely uh, opposed in every way to any kind of expansion of the Russian sphere of influence. 
And I wondered, in fact, I was going to ask uh, Dr. Trifkovich, is, is America, have we, have we somehow slipped into the shoes of the Israeli? And are, are we now playing this, this strange card? In other words, uh, everywhere, whether Bosnia or Kosovo or uh, in the Middle East, playing Muslims, uh, supporting Islamic groups and leaders that are very anti-Christian and oppressing Christians, and while at the same time opposing uh, semi-Christian Russia? Well, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And wherever America intervenes, the Christians disappear. Uh, It applied to uh, Iraq, where the Christian community is under half a million now, uh, maybe as few as 250,000. And it was strong and flourishing under the so-called oppressive regime of Saddam Hussein. It was oppressive, but it was secular. It was not motivated by Sharia. And the same applies to Kosovo. The same applies to the Muslim-controlled areas of Bosnia. And the same applies to the remnant of the Italian community in Libya in the aftermath of uh, the intervention in 2011. I say that Uh, The U.S. policy is not guided by some uh, conscious emulation of the Israelis' anti-Russian sentiments, but by the overall geopolitical design to keep the heartland of Eurasia under peripheral control. And that was the strategy of the British Empire in, in the 19th century, And it is the strategy ever since the beginning of the Cold War in the 20th. In both cases, we see a sea power, a maritime power, the UK uh, in, in the 19th, the US in the 20th, trying to strangulate the heartland by not only using jihad as a tool of policy, but consistently failing to instrumentalize jihad as a viable fruit of the policy and producing undesirable uh, results. The the Brits had two unsuccessful Afghan wars in the 19th century. Let us remember their disastrous expedition into Afghanistan in 1839. It was replicated very faithfully by The Crimean War, in which Napoleon III joined the British in the pro-Turkish intervention, and it ruined the concert of Europe that developed after the the Congress of Vienna in 1815. It meant that for the rest of the century, Britain and Europe, uh, sorry, Britain and, and Russia, were locked in a geostrategic game from which Bismarck's Germany in the end, proved to be the highly destabilizing benefactor. Yes, well, one wouldn't expect the U.S. State Department to learn lessons from history, <laughs> considering considering the, the shallow operation that most of our diplomats receive. But aren't we aren't we in a in a very playing a very dangerous game, a precarious position? Because while fomenting jihadist movements, 
in, uh, in the Middle East and, in fact, around the world and supporting them, as we did in the uh, Arab Spring uh, in Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, and uh, now Syria, while at the same time confronting more and more terrorist incidents within the United States, uh, obviously brought on by uh, Islamic immigrants here, and we refuse to take the smallest possible steps to ensure the American people's protection against future uh, acts of Islamic terrorism. Absolutely, and it is a result of a schizophrenic mindset of the liberal establishment that dominates American politics, academia, and media uh, as, as they are today. On the one hand, they will intervene to promote Islamism as a tool of policy. It will return to them as a boomerang, as it did in Benghazi with Ambassador Stevens in September of 2012. On the other hand, they're accepting so-called refugees from Syria or intending to accept them, putting uh, domestic security services into quandary. Nowadays, in Europe, security services are de facto in a state of collapse. The attackers of Sh on Charlie Hebdo in January of this year, the attacker on uh, the express train from Brussels to Paris last summer, and the attackers in uh, uh, Paris last month, were all on the radar screen of the French security services who were no longer capable of tracking them down. With the influx of the migrant invasion, uh, which we are witnessing as we speak, it will be, become literally impossible for the Europeans to keep control of their jihadist diaspora. Now, the United States is not there yet, and that's why certain legal rules and re regulations need to be introduced to protect the American homeland. And that was the crux of my article, that if you subscribe to an ideology, and I insist, Islam is not only a faith. Islam is a comprehensive plan of political and legal and, uh, of course, religious totality of life that does not se separate mosque from the state, anyone who wants to bring Sharia to America, anyone who believes that the U.S. Constitution is not the supreme la law of the land, should be excluded. And it is not xenophobic, it is not Islamophobic, it is common sense. The United States, as early as 1919-1920, in the immediate aftermath of World War I, and at the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution, started profiling immigrants or prospective immigrants for their political affiliations. McCarran Act of 1950 reasserted this principle, and I think there is nothing wrong with applying it to the influx, potential massive influx of suspect people today. Well, uh, Dr. Ivkovich, I don't pretend to believe that, that Donald Trump has read either of your books on, on this subject. Um, for those who aren't familiar, Dr. Ivkovich has written books 
called The Sword of the Prophet and Defeating Jihad uh, to, to talk about, uh, first of all, the historical context of Islam for people who don't know and who are uh, taught by our media or the world media that uh, Islam is a religion of peace, and to put into place some common sense uh, policy, public policy for how to deal with this. Um, I have to imagine you must have been as surprised as, as I was, despite uh, his propensity to, to make outrageous statements, Dr. Trifkovich, that... Uh, that Trump uh, said that there would be such a thing as a ban of Muslims. And uh, I, to, uh, to top off that surprise, I found out that Be Benjamin Netanyahu stands in solidarity with, with Muslims against Donald Trump. Um, you really can't make this stuff up. <laughs> well, look, if Trump is out Trifkoviching Trifkovich, it simply means that certain ideas have come of age. And... Uh, <laughs> In that sense, uh, it is a good thing. He is obviously thinking the unthinkable, saying the unsayable. I've been doing it for a long time, but uh, at least now through criticism of Trump, uh, it is unavoidable for the liberal establishment and for the bipartisan consensus not to face the possibility that certain criteria for uh, the, uh, the admissibility of aliens seeking entry into the United States should be taken into account. In that sense, we should be grateful to Donald. Hmm. The, uh, it is interesting that something like 66% of Republicans being polled say they agree with Trump on the basic point. And, uh, and, uh, and a majority of all Americans polled uh, agree with this. So if it's, it is odd to say that something is un-American, and not only is it does it have ample precedent in American history, and and by the way, uh, Washington and Adams wanted to keep French sympathizers out of the United States during the uh, French Revolution. Uh, so it's we're, we're talking we're talking about a, a basic political principle of non-admission of radical foreigners into the United States that goes back to the American founding. But it's not it's historically, of course, we have to call it un-American. And it's un-American today, even though a majority of the American people support it, because the, the leadership in Washington and in the media define what, uh, what our country is, which has nothing to do with the way actual people think and live. Exactly. And there is the absurd assumption that there is a basic human right of foreigners to come to the United <laughs> States as visitors, businessmen, or immigrants. There is no such human right, and it is a total construct which is contrary to uh, the tradition, constitution, and security interests of this country. Yeah, there's a, we could talk all day about this, and I don't want to. I don't want to belabor the point, but the uh, you get uh, left with you get Marxist Christians making this argument because they don't know anything about the scriptures or the traditions of their churches. You get, of course, uh, Marxist Democrats, because, you know, Ma Marx and Engels themselves believe that national borders should be abolished and that, you know, somehow the richer nations of the world should support the poor nations of the world. It, that rhetoric, it's interesting, begins in the Communist Manifesto, 
But now, of course, we have the Republican Party, where even the conservative wing of the Republican Party is unwilling to stand up and say, we have a right to exclude anybody we like, or rather whom we don't like. It's not just be, we, we, that Muslims should be excluded because of their propensity to violence and their hatred of the United States and, and of Christianity and of the American way of life, but, I mean, they, large numbers of, of unassimilable aliens undermine the, 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 the cultural uh, uh, system that we have. You can't be comfortable as an American if you are surrounded by people who think in ways that, that you find incomprehensible. Now we have to uh, address the problem of uh, economic interest of certain segments of the GOP in allowing them in. And yes. uh, it's the same syndrome that we witnessed in Europe with the influx of so-called gastarbeiters, guest workers from Turkey into Germany, from the Indian subcontinent into Great Britain, from Northern Africa into France. They all behaved in exactly the same manner. They created ghetto areas from the native population, English in the case of Birmingham or Leicester, Germans in the case of certain suburbs of Berlin or Dortmund, the Dutch from Rotterdam, the uh, Belgians, the Flemings from Antwerp, and of course the French from uh, banlieues of Paris were excluded. And these are no-go areas. They're euphemistically called in France the areas of special sensitivity. 700 of them exist as we speak, and they're the areas in which it is no longer possible to buy wine in the supermarket and where girls who do not wear the hijab uh, run the risk of being cut with a knife from the angle of the lip to uh, the earlobe, and it is called sarcastically, the smile. Yeah. French police do not intervene because they know that without backup from another two or three police cars, they cannot even function. These are de facto autonomous areas of Sharia law and jihadism in the heart of Europe. And we have not even talked about the immigrant influx, but with this massive invasion that we witnessed this year, a million people plus, and the EU itself says there may be three million of them by the, the end of next year, means that security agencies and police will be so overwhelmed that it will no longer be able to preserve the coherence of these societies, of which Marie Le Pen, of course, is well aware, and uh, her local election results in Pas-de-Calais and uh, in the region of Côte d'Azur points that even if the establishment is right in demonizing Islamophobia, quote-unquote, they will be hard-pressed to prevent the rebellion from below. What support for uh, Trump is really coming down to in America, because, you know, on, on most fronts, uh, the uh, political platform, if you could even call it a platform, of Donald Trump 
is not so different from, say, uh, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and other mainstream conservative Republicans. What distinguishes him is not even his opposition to the <clears throat> Islamization of the United States, but rather his willingness to take a firm stand on the one hand, to protect our southern border from uh, a, a constant invasion of Latin American immigrants, and two, to protect us from, from uh, j- Islamic Jihad. That seems to be 100% of, of Trump's support right now, and, and that's the reason it's growing. What is sort of ironic is that the men of... Uh, uh, who does not have the command of the historical sweep and uh, the understanding of all the background instinctively seems to do the right thing and says the right thing. And that gives certain hope for the resurgence of the genuine American spirit. Well, you know, but Trump, Trump is, you know, they accuse him uh, one day he's an anti-Semite, the next day he's, you know, he's an anti-Islamic, the next day he's anti-Mexican. He has done, he has successfully done business with uh, with many of his business partners and closest colleagues have been Jewish. He does a lot of business in uh, in the Arab world, in Dubai and elsewhere. And of course, he has he has done an enormous amount of business uh, with Mexico. So he's per- he is perfectly capable of, of, on the one hand, of dealing constructively and profitably with people he doesn't necessarily want overwhelming the United States and putting American interests second. But he knows how that you can you can protect American interests without, in fact, being a hysterical bigot. Because it's clear that, as we used to say in South Carolina, he ain't mad at nobody. He really he is. He is simply he wants to make money. He knows how to make money, and he wants to keep the United States a going, profitable concern, which it can't be if it is overrun by immigrants who hate its way of life. I think uh, that point's well taken, Doctor Fleming. And I know you're you're busy, Doctor Trifkovich. So uh, we're uh, we're winding up today's episode. I want to ask you, where do you think we go from here, both for Miss? Le Pen and the National Front, and for Trump, the Republican Party in the United States, uh, will this will this peter out? Does it need attacks and and sort of uh, headlines to keep it going, or do you think maybe the the genie's out of the bottle? As you say, we're actually having a conversation about the unthinkable. Uh, I believe that Marine Le, Trump, uh, Le Pen, Le Trump. <laughs> will be demonized by the French establishment, and that. Uh, both uh, the center-right and the center-left will again draw ranks in uh, pointing out the danger of Islamophobia and nativism and populism, blah, 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 all the isms. Uh, I do not believe, however, that she will ever be elected French president. She will be taken out before that happens. The same applies to to, to Trump in the U.S. Uh, even if there is the danger of him becoming the candidate, uh, an accident will happen. Uh, the establishment on both sides of the Atlantic, deeply rooted in the belief in its exceptionality, 
the establishment which has much closer cultural links with each other than with the ranks of their own people will ensure that the ship stays on course, even that course, uh, if that course implies self-annihilation. I use in my writings very often the term Weiningerian self-hate. Tom Fleming is familiar with it. I'm afraid that in the case of both elites, east and west of the ocean, east and west of the pond, uh, the problem is near terminal, but by golly, they have the means of ensuring that these mavericks do not come to power ever. Mm -hmm. Sergio, years ago when uh, Pat Buchanan looked like he might actually uh, have a successful political career, although I had, I never thought it would work, um, he, uh, I asked him what he wanted to do, and he said you know, he was reforming the Republican Party and he was going to make it serve the American interest, that it was corrupt and, and, uh, and, un and it was no longer the, the party of American conservatives. And I said, Pat, the last American who ran for office and got, and as a Republican who wanted to reform the Republican Party was James A. Garfield, and a, a man declaring himself a Republican stalwart shot him in a train station. Believe me, if you get within a shouting distance of the Republican nomination for the presidency, you will, not, you will no longer be with us. I agree entirely. Yeah. On that happy note, listeners, uh, we thank <laughs> Dr. Trifkovich and Dr. Fleming for joining us for episode one of Foreign Affairs. Uh, again, we know you're, you're busy, uh, Dr. Ripkovich, and, and yourself as well, Dr. Fleming. So thanks so much for uh, giving your time to our listeners to, to hear your points of view. And we look forward to hearing more from you next year. It was my pleasure as always. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dr. Fleming. Goodbye. <laughs>